the music ministry brings. Everyone who's involved, choir, um, in, in, in music, instrumental, whatever it is, is such an edification for the saints. Thank you to everyone. Thank you to Pastor Weiler for the work they put into it. Uh, absolute blessing. If you would, please turn to Luke chapter 4. Titled this, Praying for the Kingdom of God. As Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And I decided, uh, since we have such a full day, not to jump into Luke chapter 5, but instead to take one more look at the passage at the end of chapter 4. There's still a lot here. Last week, I brought to attention how Christ was always careful and, and prudent to live out his sermons. He was very committed to that. His life and his ministry became a picture of what God would offer Israel by establishing, through establishing, the messianic kingdom. At his trial, Pilate asked Jesus, So you are a king? And Jesus responded, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Jesus also told Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. He repeated it. My kingdom is not of this realm. You can find that in John chapter 18. And the history of biblical redemption from beginning to end can really be described as a tale of two kingdoms. There is a temporal kingdom consisting of the physical world which Satan offered to Jesus. Uh, at, the, at the temptations, he took him to a, to a high mountain, remember? And he said, I will offer you this if you'll bow down to me. I'll give you the temporal kingdoms of the world. Jesus was offered through a grand vision. And in all of its vain glory, all of the proud glory, the world that we see, it's still a sinful, corrupt type of kingdom. It's governed by Satan. The Apostle Peter assures us in 2 Peter 3.10, it will be melted down and it will be destroyed through judgment in fire, intense heat. Contrast that then to the eternal kingdom of God, a kingdom or sphere of influence, a realm ruled by Christ. It currently exists in a spiritual form, as Christ is seated at the right hand of God. But at God's ordained time, the spiritual kingdom will become a physical kingdom. Christ will rule over his redeemed people in righteousness forever. You can read about that new kingdom in Revelation chapter 21. The Apostle Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, 13, According to God's promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Those who place their trust in Jesus Christ will inherit that kingdom, the kingdom of God. It will be the fulfillment and the manifestation of the promises that God gave to King David in fulfilling the Davidic kingdom originally offered to Israel. And as I emphasized last week, Colossians 1 verse 13 
describes the mercy God has shown to us who trust in Him. Stating, He rescued us from the domain or the kingdom of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now at the moment of salvation, we didn't immediately change physical locations. Remember we talked about that last week. But we were nonetheless spiritually transferred from the realm of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, into the kingdom of God. Matthew refers to it as the kingdom of heaven, synonymous with the kingdom of God. So the experience of the Christian, it's like a nomad traveling through a foreign kingdom. Many ways, though we're spiritual citizens of another kingdom, we're physically traveling through a foreign physical kingdom uh, awaiting Christ's return to establish his kingdom. In many ways then, we're not a lot different than Abraham or Rahab or Isaiah or any of the saints that have gone past who Hebrews 11.13 says, also died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that we are strangers and exiles on the earth, verse 16, but as it is, they desired a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God and he has prepared a city for them. You know, as an American, you can travel over to Europe. If you've got enough money, you can spend a long time there. In fact, you could conceivably spend the rest of your life in Germany if you had enough money. But just living in Germany doesn't make you a citizen or a German. That's not your country. What matters is the citizenship on your passport. What does that say? That is your country. And no matter where you travel across the globe, no matter foreign lands across the Pacific, across the Atlantic, as you look down at your passport, it says you are from the United States. And you know that you are from the better country. Hey, if you're from Canada, just keep it down. It's an illustration, all right? Christians are citizens of a better country. And when we baptize a person, as they profess their faith in Christ, as they make their profession, uh, we provide a baptismal certificate that they get to take with them. And though it's merely symbolic, a profession of faith, a certificate that you've been baptized can act as a reminder that you no longer live in this world. You are no longer a citizen of this kingdom. Of this world, Tracy. God has transferred your citizenship to a better country. The kingdom of God. Well, Jesus invested the better part of three years offering the kingdom of God to Israel. Christ would occupy the throne of David if they would be willing to receive him. His sinless life displayed uh, the, the justice of God, the, the perfect righteousness of God, there could be no better ruler that could sit on the throne in Israel. 
His words and his works displayed the, the wisdom, the, the power, the compassion, and the mercy of God. All the good that he did, it showed the power and mercy of God. Those works of Jesus provided Israel, provided those people with a picture of what living under the rule of the Messiah would be like. This is what it'll be like. There'll be healing of every kind of malady and disease as we saw last week. He was willing to Israel to wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'd be no longer any death, any mourning, any crying, or any pain. That's what the kingdom offered. You can see that in Revelation 21 verse 4. All Israel had to do was receive Christ. And he would establish for them the eternal kingdom of God. I won't spoil the ending. And, and this kingdom that Jesus offered, it was a bona fide offer. It was a genuine offer to Israel. John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah, came exactly as Scripture had promised. And in Matthew 17, verse 10, Jesus' disciples asked him, Why then did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. And, he did not, and they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. They did not receive Elijah. They did not recognize the Messiah. They rejected the kingdom of God. And there I guess I just spoiled the ending. They rejected the kingdom of God. Yet Christ's offer, it was a legitimate offer. If they would confess him as Lord of the kingdom. And you might ask yourself, who, who would reject that? The answer, everybody. As King David himself writes in Psalm 53-2, God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them, notice, every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And those of you who are familiar with Romans chapter 3 know that the Apostle Paul then later uh, applies this to the church age. Same today, not even one seeks for God. Jesus preached concerning the majesty, the glory, the kingdom of God. He demonstrated compassion on the people to show them what the kingdom will look like, that the kingdom of God had come upon them. In our passage today, I propose, uh, he even prayed for the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God would be established and in that, in those three things, his ministry becomes a pattern for us. One to mimic. One to follow. I'm going to read uh, just these three verses beginning in Luke chapter 4, verse 42. When day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place. 
the Gospel of Mark describes that it is still dark out at this time. The same, same event. Early in the morning, he went for the purpose of being alone. So he went to a secluded place, and the crowds were searching for him, and came to Jesus and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. For I was sent for this purpose. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. The reason for Jesus' itinerant style of ministry, his traveling ministry of going throughout Israel, was to offer the kingdom of God to all Israel. Many of his parables that that he shared as he would go from place to place, the ones we have recorded uh, with us magnify the, the infinite value of discovering the kingdom of God. Enormous value. Much more valuable than anything in the kingdoms of the world that Satan had shown. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So much more valuable than anything you could possess in this kingdom is the kingdom of God. Again, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven, it's like a merchant seeking fine pearls. Can you imagine him speaking to the crowds like this? The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. Fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. It's the most valuable thing you could have. The kingdom of heaven. Again, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind and when it was filled they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers but the bad they threw away as Jesus went about Israel as he traveled uh, all throughout the land he repeatedly preached spoke about the kingdom of God his ministry was about the kingdom of God the coming kingdom of God. Uh, most of his similar of, of his sermons probably were similar. They had a lot of the same content, resembled one another at least. Not saying he wasn't creative every time, he was. But as he went place to place, you know, they didn't have satellite feed. They didn't have printed penny sermons as they handed around England and Spurgeon's time. They didn't have digital recordings. At each location, Jesus would have to once again establish for the audience the glories of the kingdom of God. That was his preaching ministry. You know, we, we don't often think about this. I'll be honest, it doesn't, doesn't often come to my mind as often as it should. But Jesus' preaching ministry wasn't a preaching of the cross. He wasn't preaching himself on the cross. It wasn't even until much later that Jesus explained to his disciples that he must suffer. And he explained to them privately at the outset that he was going to suffer. Remember, they tried to stop him. No, wait a second. This isn't what we've been 
been wanting to hear. That's not the kingdom we're thinking about. He told them he must go to Jerusalem and suffer at the hands of sinners. No, rather than the cross, Jesus was preaching the kingdom of God for Israel. That explains why after his resurrection, the disciples were still asking him. This is after the resurrection. Acts chapter 1 verse 6. Lord, is it, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? See, your mind's still on the kingdom. And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed on his own authority. He said, don't worry about it. Go do what you're supposed to do. And uh, the disciples had heard so many times Jesus again and again calling Israel to receive the kingdom. In his sovereignty, Jesus knew that they would not. He knew it was not going to be established. He knew that the cross was in his sights. But just because people who are spiritually dead refused an offer doesn't make the offer any less. Just because they say, I don't want it, doesn't make the offer any less. It's a genuine offer. Knowing Israel would reject Christ as their king didn't make Christ's passion or love for them any less. It did not. At one point when Jesus was approaching the city, the God of our universe then wept over Jerusalem. Wept over them. Luke 19.41 Can you remember the last time that you wept over friends and family and neighbors who will not receive Christ? The concern. Jesus even knew Jerusalem wasn't going to receive him in numbers. We can't dismiss Jesus' offer. And we can't just dismiss the people's recalcitrant response, their objection to the fact that they're not being chosen. Chosen. We can tend to dismiss that, you know, and say, well, they, they must just not be chosen. That is not a good reflection of Jesus. Nonetheless, he loved them, and he took the message to them. And everywhere he went, Jesus was inviting people into the kingdom. He didn't allow the scores who were going to reject the message, the majority that would say no and refuse and want to crucify him, even slightly detour from, from those who are going to receive him. He didn't let it deter from, from the message being offered to everyone. A legitimate offer to everyone. MacArthur calls that offer a universal offer. It's a genuine offer. As scripture declares, the resistance is also a universal. A universal rejection apart from the Holy Spirit. In our natural fallen state, mankind are spiritually dead. Ephesians 2 verse 5, we are by nature children of wrath. Ephesians 2 verse 3, and therefore we love the darkness more than we love the light in our natural state. 
That is the environment that Christ walked into, folks. He was willing to go into that type of environment. Will we? Are we willing to go into an environment that rejects the message, that rejects our Savior, that's repulsed by the thought that that they're just not good people? Everybody wants to think they're good people. They don't want to be told that they're sinners. Are we willing to go the way Christ went? Are we willing to walk the way that he walked? Because out of all of that, out of all the resistance and out of all the rejection, Jesus came so that he might draw out of that, out of the brokenness, people who would receive him. So that he might build for himself a kingdom of God. For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. He didn't come just to preach. He came to seek and to save, and he came to preach in such a way that there would be a future kingdom of God. He preached in such a way that people would hear about the kingdom. He didn't come just to heal. He healed in such a way, he showed compassion in such a way that people would sense the kingdom of God is approaching. When he set out to pray, he prayed in a manner that would ask the Father to establish the kingdom of God. Father, who art in heaven, hallowed is your name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus came to seek. He came to save Those who are saved are both rescued and then transferred by God into his ever-expanding kingdom. I really can't imagine Jesus asking those who would follow him to be praying for thy kingdom to come unless he too was praying for God's kingdom to come. Do I know all of the content in Christ's prayer in Luke 4, verse 42? No. Do I know for certain the content that he prayed? No. But we do know that the focus of Christ was the kingdom of God and his preaching. We know that is what he preached. I think we can feel pretty confident that the kingdom of God was also a very prominent focus in his prayers. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. This is how Jesus taught us to pray. On two separate occasions, as he gave patterns for praying, and people asked to pray, he pointed out to pray for God's kingdom to come, for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we pray, Jesus instructs his followers, those of us who know him, that the kingdom of God should be a primary emphasis. It should be on our list right there next to our second cousin Earl's hangnail. You get the point. Admittedly, it's not that we're only to pray for the kingdom or exclusively to pray for the kingdom. Even the Lord's Prayer encompasses more than that. 
But we surely can't exclude passionate prayers for the kingdom to come. Three times in the last chapter of Revelation, Jesus says, I am coming quickly. In fact, the last prayer of the Bible, a prayer that was offered by the Apostle John, as he's writing uh, the last book and, and ready now to put a seal to close Scripture, the canon of Scripture, John himself utters this short prayer in response to Jesus' three-time declaration that I am coming. Revelation 22, verse 20, John prays in harmony with the will of God, saying, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. John's praying exactly what Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come. In the closing page of Scripture, it becomes more than a subtle reminder that you and I have to keep our priorities straight. The kingdom, the kingdom of God, has to be a focus of our prayer. We need to recognize also that there are going to be distractions from that. There are going to be diversions uh, coming at Christians trying to keep us from prioritizing the kingdom of God. I believe this is why Jesus, as he taught us to pray on both occasions, said, prioritize the kingdom of God. In praying in such a way, we'll be reminded continually the, the primacy, the, the supremacy of the coming kingdom, the expansion of the kingdom that we need to remain focused on. Jesus is in the process of building his kingdom. For thy kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it's full grown, it's larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree. Jesus is talking expansion of the kingdom. And he spoke another parable to them, Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and had in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. It's a growing kingdom. It's an expanding kingdom. And sometimes I think we fall into that, that thought or that feeling because God is all powerful that, that someday, you know, he's just going to return and with a snap of his fingers or, the, or the, the wave of his wand that suddenly he's going to, to put the kingdom in place. All at once, all of a sudden, pow! There's the kingdom. Well, that's kind of how the new heavens and new earth are going to come about as they're recreated. But his kingdom isn't going to be built all of a sudden then. His kingdom is being built now, folks. These parables are given in part uh, to remind us that the kingdom is to be the emphasis. It's a continuously growing and expanding kingdom. So we're to be praying continuously that God will grow this kingdom. And as Acts says, add souls daily. Every day we have to be in the activity of building the kingdom. Then we recognize there's going to be distractions that come. Distractions came to Jesus. He rose early in the morning to pray. For among other things, that kingdom to come. 
And immediately also come the distractions. They're always there. They're always there. In verse 42, it says, When day came, the crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. They didn't know what they were doing. In all likelihood, they wanted him to remain and keep healing, right? How would he preach the kingdom? How could he remain focused on the kingdom if he'd stayed in Capernaum? So a distraction came. And as with every church and every ministry, there's a time for consoling. There's a time for comforting. There's a time for meeting needs. Remember from last week, Jesus had, had spent the entire previous evening with them, helping them, taking care of them, showing them love, compassion, as he laid every, hands, every hand on every one of them. Um, but then they tried to prevent him from going. They don't want him to leave. They don't want him to go. They don't want him to go preach the kingdom. It doesn't say how they tried to prevent him. Who knows, for all we know, they might have said, we'll make him mayor. Stick around here. We got a good thing going, right? We don't know. It just said they tried to prevent him from going. They could have told him, hey, we're going to make you the new ruler of our synagogue. This other guy can't preach like you. We're going to make you the new ruler. For all we know, they might have said they're having a potluck the next evening. You've got to stay. We need you to stick around here. And that's all fine. There's a time for potluck. We're going to have one. It's coming up. There's a time for fellowship. But is it possible to get distracted to where we don't go? So many activities, perfectly good activities, nothing wrong with the activities, but in no way contribute to going. To go. What was Jesus' response in such a situation? Well, potluck wasn't why he came. That isn't the reason that he came. Verse 43, he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. What was his purpose? Preaching the kingdom of God. The Gospel of Mark records Simon Peter also approaching Jesus at this point saying, well, everyone's looking for you. Jesus said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. Mark chapter 1. And Mark and Luke both conclude by telling us Jesus kept on preaching in the synagogues in Judea and in Galilee and the whole surrounding area. He was preaching the kingdom of God. Part of the reason I believe that Jesus was praying for the kingdom, being focused on the kingdom, taught us to pray for the kingdom, is because he knew he would be prepared as the distractions came to keep his mind focused on the kingdom. Priority number one is the kingdom, the expansion of the kingdom. I came to preach the kingdom. I came to seek and save that which is lost. 
And at the end of three years, Jesus entered Jerusalem. A number of Israelites had believed, we said, because Lazarus, or it's told because Lazarus had been resurrected. They met him as he entered Jerusalem. And in John 12, verse 13, it says that they took branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him. Began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king of Israel, they said. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. Seated on a donkey's colt. Riding into Jerusalem on that donkey. That was an explicit fulfillment of a prophecy by Zechariah. Very explicit. You can't miss it. Zechariah 9 verse 9 says, Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. The king is coming. The kingdom is coming. He is just and endowed with salvation. That's how he's described by Zechariah. Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus entered Jerusalem offering himself as their king. He entered offering the kingdom. A culmination of three years of ministry. And we know the priests, the scribes had plotted against him. We know that story. Later, after they had grabbed Jesus, he was handed over to Pilate. Even Pilate had gotten word. Even Pilate had heard what was going on about Jesus' claim. And in John chapter 18, Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responded saying, My kingdom is not of this world. Therefore, therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate had no respect for Jews. He had no love for Jews. He hated Jews. But after examining Jesus, after looking into the claims made by Jesus... He brought him out to the people and announced to them, Do you wish that I release for you the king of the Jews? We talked in our prayer meeting a couple months ago. I know Carol Thomas brought this up. We're talking about why did Pilate nail in three different languages the king of the Jews above Jesus on the cross? And, and, And why... Is that there? And they came and challenged it. The, the, the Jews challenged that and said, Don't write that he's king of the Jews. Write that he only claimed to be king of the Jews, remember? What did Pilate say? What is written is written, right? We talked about why that. Why Pilate? He wasn't a believer. But why did he put that up there, three different languages? I suspect. Anytime you got someone who's going to be tried and executed, 
and, and, and there's going to be a crucifixion. Now, this, this, was, this was a very serious event, right? If someone's going to be executed in the state of Florida, you know how much goes into that. Here, Jesus has been accused. He's been accused of being a fraud. And so the charges come against Jesus, and, and Pilate is there, and Pilate's a governor. He's a high-ranking official. Can you imagine the governor of Florida putting someone to death without knowing who they are? Without knowing what their background is? Without knowing what their birth certificate says? Pilate isn't going to put someone to death until he's really looked into things. And we know that all of the records of the births and, and, and the lineages and the genealogies were kept in the temple. And if Pilate's going to find out exactly who this person is, this Jesus, he's going to look. He's going to send someone to look into these claims. And you know from Luke and from Matthew, we've got two different genealogies that are preserved. And before the temple was burned and, and, and disassembled in 70 AD, all of these records were there available as to the identities of people. Extended genealogies. And I can't imagine that Pilate himself didn't have people at his disposal who could go and find out, who is this guy? You aren't going to put someone to death for a charge, and you haven't looked into its background. And people could have come to Pilate after looking into the genealogies, into the temple. We know that Jesus should have sat on the throne. We know that his father should have been sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. He was the heir to the Davidic throne. Herod was an imposter. Herod was put in place, of, as we've said before, by the Roman Senate. They bestowed on Herod title of the king of the Jews. But even Herod knew he wasn't the king of the Jews. That's why he, when he heard from the Magi that the king of the Jews had been born, he got all upset. And he was going to do something about it, right? My impression is that the evidence came in and Pilate looked and said, this guy should be king of the Jews. This guy should actually be. Now, I don't like Jews. I don't believe in their kingdom or anything. I'm a Roman. But this guy should be king of the Jews. And he turned to the people. And he said, do you wish that I release for you the king of the Jews? I find no guilt in him. And it was the day of the preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your king! So they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, They couldn't say he wasn't king. They said, We have no king but Caesar. So in John 19, verse 16, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. 
They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. They rejected the king. They rejected the kingdom. We know the rest of the story. The sinless lamb of God died. Died as a criminal bearing all the sins of all who would come and confess him as their king. For he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds we are healed. Now on the third day he rose from the dead according to the scriptures was seen by the apostles, other witnesses. 1 Corinthians 15 says by over 500 people at once. And the Jerusalem who rejected their king, that city was destroyed 70 AD entirely. Exactly as Christ said it would be destroyed, Matthew 22. That day, the Son of God was crucified. Since then, the invitation has gone out through the gospel message. Receive your king. The message has gone to the highways and the byways. It's the same invitation Jesus gave to Israel. Enter the kingdom. Receive your king. Who would refuse such an invitation. To have your sins forgiven and forgotten if you'll simply repent and turn to Jesus and make him, confess him, your Savior and your Lord. Scripture says in Romans 10 verse 19, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. We have a young woman here named Tracy. She's received Christ as her king. She's been rescued by God and has been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, And she's going to make a public profession of her faith in Christ. She's going to declare her new citizenship through water baptism. And then you're going to get a certificate with it. What a wonderful day when someone has received Jesus Christ as their king and entered the kingdom of God. Right now I'm going to ask the men to come forward to distribute our Lord's Supper. Those of us who are